everybody. Welcome to the BAT podcast. This is Randy Nonnenberg. And Howard Swig. We're uh, excited to be uh, interviewing uh, Peter Cunningham today. You may know Peter Cunningham from uh, Real Time Racing, a lot of interactions with Acura um, and motorsports. He also has the Real Time Collection Hall, which is what I think is, you know, maybe the best uh, Honda collection uh, in the U.S. And uh, he's listed some super interesting uh, Honda and Acura product on BAT um, and is definitely in there in the comments and discussing things. So we definitely want to get uh, to know you a little bit, Peter. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. This is uh, a great podcast and it's fun to be a part of it. Cool. Well, let's dive right in. I know you had a car listed recently on BAT um, and um, it just finished out. It was a no reserve listing. You've been pretty bold lately with listing some things, no reserve. Can you tell us about the Integra uh, that you just had listed? You bet. Yeah, it was a four-door JDM Integra Type R, which made it rather unusual. Um, you know, the U.S. spec Integra Type Rs are all three-door or hatchback units. And in Japan, you could mostly get those, but they also had a four-door model, uh, which was called the DB8. So um, we found this car and, and brought it over here and... Um, you know, we thought about just keeping it for a while, but it was, it was in such good shape. We thought that, um, maybe the marketplace would, uh, would like to see this one. So we thought we would sell it on bring a trailer. Fantastic. Well, it worked out. There was a ton of interest and, and certainly that was the first four door model like that we had had. Uh, so it makes sense. Uh, the rarity given that you imported it yourself. Um, tell us a little bit about, I mean, I have always associated you with orange and white racing Acuras. When I was in high school and college, I was going to, you know, the Long Beach Grand Prix and Laguna Seca and, and going and seeing sports car racing and, um, whether it was NSXs or, um, whichever generation they are, maybe third gen, uh, uh, Integras that you guys were running, um, always, always talked about on, you know, speed vision challenge racing and all this sort of stuff that was formative for me. And were you the guy that, you know, started real time racing? Is that you, or is that a partnership or something? You just came in as a driver or tell us about your history and relationship with that team and maybe how that relates to so much accurate interaction. Sure. Yeah. Real time actually started in 1987 when we did our first program with Honda where we went ice racing in a road racing uh, series that they had up in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and um, Ontario. Um, so that was really the start of it. So that was 34 years ago. And we did well at that and won a few championships there. And then we won a, a rally championship with an Acura Integra GSR second gen. Um, and then we started this world challenge thing first with Honda Preludes and then the Integra Type R's that you mentioned, and then other cars after that, including the first and second gen TSX, the first generation TLX and uh, the NSX GT3. But also back in the day there from 96 through 2002, we had a first gen NSX that was quite successful. So yeah, we've been involved. I've owned real time after founding it uh, all along. Um, but then along the way in my racing career, I also drove for other uh, companies, including BMW and Nissan and, and others. 
but uh, certainly Honda is, is my favorite. No, that, that's awesome to hear. You know, we did uh, a podcast a few weeks back where we talked a lot about kind of uh, uh, arcane and defunct racing series going back to the 70s and 80s. Uh, you just rattled off a bunch of stuff that you did. Uh, I think you did some endurance ice racing. You mentioned ice racing. I think those were like longer races. Uh, the Speed Vision Cup, uh, golden era of Speed Vision in the 90s that uh, Randy and I remember very well. Um, I think you drove a Honda CRX uh, in the IMSA Firehawk series back in the day, if I'm not mistaken. So, um, yeah, I'd love to hear about, and you've obviously gone on to do a lot with, with uh, the World Challenge event. Um, but in those, in those early years, in the 80s and early 90s, was that kind of a full-time job for you? Was it uh, a hobby and you had a day job? Tell us about kind of uh, uh, getting started in those, uh, in those early days. Sure thing. Yeah, I, I was going to college in the, I graduated high school in 1980 and I started autocrossing and road racing at a, at a club racing level. And I had a few things that helped me to um, leapfrog into a, a, you know, a sustainable situation. So um, long story short, starting in 1985, I was in professional racing, getting paid to, to race and didn't really have much of a job. But um, if I uh, had had a real job, I might have been making more money than I was in those earliest days. But since getting hooked up with Honda in 1987, we would get paid, uh, they would pay our expenses to get to the track, and then they would pay us a percentage of the prize money. But the the amount of prize money that was paid was pretty significant to where that was some, some real chain. So uh, we, we did okay. And, and I was a skip barber instructor in those days and, and, you know, just kind of did like what a lot of my uh, contemporaries did and what some of the uh, younger guys and gals are doing nowadays to try to do it. But, you know, it's really a, a lottery and a house of cards and you, you need a lot more than just uh, a helmet under your arm to to make it as a professional driver. Unfortunately, no, I think uh, I think most uh, racers at every level are looking for that. Uh, what you refer to as a sustainable arrangement. It's uh, I think uh, uh, a pipe dream for most, uh, myself included. Um, but that's cool. I mean, Honda obviously long uh, legacy in motorsports. I guess around that era when you were ramping up with them. I mean, they were. I think Ayrton Senna drove a Honda Power Formula One car, kind of in that era. So. Um, it sounds like you plugged right in maybe at a perfect time for, uh, for what they were doing across a, a number of different race series. Right. The stuff, all the stuff that I really did my whole career was all production based. It was not the formula car side, certainly not formula one, which, you know, was something that I was uh, a big fan of, but was nothing what, what we were doing. But, um, I kind of like this production based racing because, the cars that we're racing are, are the real cars. And if the car is no good as a street car, it's probably not going to be a very good race car. If it doesn't handle well, if it's not reliable, if it doesn't have good power. So that's why the Hondas um, tended to do particularly well. And yeah, we raced them in, in all different series, including the Firestone Firehawk and what was then the Escort Endurance Championship, later the Escort World Challenge. Uh, and then speed, it just got, you know, rebranded the, the Speed Vision World Challenge and then the Speed World Challenge and then eventually now the SRO World Challenge. So, yeah, I, I just really like that production based stuff. And that was pretty much my whole career. Well, I loved it, too, man, because I, you'd see cars that you recognize from the street and you guys would have them all tricked out in 
race trim. And frankly, so did your competitors, right? I mean, you were running on the Honda Acura product and you were racing against all sorts of just crazy stuff from uh, domestic racing against, uh, you know, Vipers and, and Camaros and stuff and to uh, other European sedans. And I mean, those, those grids back then were uh, really unusual to say the least. Uh, even more so than they are now. But I mean, sports car racing has always been a, a big mix like that. And it sounds like you did some higher horsepower cars and sort of maybe lower comparatively horsepower cars. Um, what was that like in terms of that mix being on track in some of those real-time cars? Well, you know, I think that the cars that I raced through the years were not really downforce cars like today's race cars are. So carrying a CRX around a corner was, you know, there was not a lot of uh, downforce helping you to do that. So it was just the mechanical grip based on the tire that you were on and the weight of the car and, and you know, the different attributes of, of the car. Um, so that's, I think, really changed over the years. And um, I was very successful in those days and maybe because I was getting older too, but maybe because of the downforce, the, these cars today, I mean, a GT3 car, you you mash on the gas all the way and it, it, you know, gives you what you need. And then you come into the corner and at the last possible moment, you just stand on the brake and drive it all the way down to the apex and then mash on the gas again. So those guys, you know, are doing their own uh, new generation of, of, of talent and everything else. But I, I don't know that I did as well in that type of a thing. You know, I, I tried to do as, as well as I could, but Maybe I was just getting old too at the same time, but yeah, certainly the glory days of those production-based cars without as many modifications um, is certainly, uh, there's, there's plenty of good memories and, and stories from those days. Peter, e even in your, uh, at your advanced age now, I'm sure you can still uh, wheel a little bit. How do, you, how do the lap times from a, from a young Pedro Cunningham compare to, uh, to today? Well, I don't know that we've done that comparison. I don't feel like I'm any slower. I mean, I, uh, after I kind of retired from road racing, I did Pikes Peak three times in, in one of our X World Challenge TLXs and didn't uh, do too bad with that. But I think I'm done on the mountain as well after, after we ran it for the third time and, and won the class for the third year in a row and set a new open class record for the third year in a row. It's like, I figure I better get out of Colorado before the police get there and uh, maybe stick to vintage racing from here on out. So, yeah, you know, it's fun running the vintage races. It's, it's kind of like a video game where you have jam cars involved. So uh, um, that's, I think what I'll stick with is, is uh, some of that stuff. Cool. Tell us what you're doing with that. I'm actually not totally aware of which stuff you're doing when you're talking vintage, are you talking these eighties and nineties cars that have been, brought back or are you talking other types of uh, other types of cars? Right. Yeah. You know, this is vintage racing with a small V it's not a capital V in vintage, you know, they, they let cars run that aren't all that old. So, so far I've raced my 2009 TSX um, in two events. And I raced um, one of our old real time Integra type R's, uh, once and a our very first Honda Prelude that I won a championship with back in 1995. We raced that at Road America last July, exactly 25 years after we 
I won my first driver's championship in the world challenge series. So, um, you know, it's just a fun thing, but it's still, you try to go as fast as you can. And there's some great drivers out there too, uh, along with some of the guys that are just kind of tootling around, but, uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Cool. I saw some pictures that you posted, uh, on, on, uh, I think the real time collection hall page potentially about you did sort of a restoration to bring that Integra type R back the orange and white one, one of your early race cars. Was that a car you lost track of, or was it stashed in the back of the workshop for a couple decades or what, what happened that it needed restoration and then was going to be put back on track? That's actually, uh, an excellent question, Randy, because, um, when we were done with these cars, like when the preludes were not in production anymore and we were switching to the Integra Type R, we would sell the old cars to, for whatever we could get for them to put into the new car because we needed them every penny to, to put into that new car. So we sold all the, the preludes and then we sold all the Integras that were saleable. Others got crushed because they were crusher cars. So we never really were able to, to keep them. They, had, they were of no use to us and we needed, we'd rather have whatever money we could get for them as an obsolete world challenge car to help pay for the new car. So again, in my advanced age, wanting to, to get the, the band back together, we were able to find um, from, the, from the fifth owner, we bought back the second winningest Integra Type R. The winningest Type R uh, that was Pierre Kleinebings, and that's at the Honda Museum in Torrance, California. But um, a guy named Bernie, who's a retired fireman from New York, had um, the second winningest car, the one that Michael Galati won the 1998 championship with and Hugh Plum had won some races. So he had it in a kind of tribute real time scheme, but we brought it back and did an extensive uh, restoration of it because, you know, it had been bashed around by so many different owners over the years. I don't know that Bernie ever really uh, did much damage to it, but uh, yeah, it's got the original roof on it, but it's got new, uh, rockers, new uh, NOS quarters, NOS fenders and doors that we had parts laying around. And boy, that thing is brand new now. It's probably never, it never looked that good back when we raced it, but um, it, it's all back together and we had a blast driving it. And there's actually an Acura video that showcased it from our event at Road America. So yeah, that, that was, that was a, quite, a, quite a, an event to, to prepare for. Love that. I love seeing those pictures. And I remember that car from when, uh, or that era of car from when you guys were racing them and, and uh, lining up all those podiums. Um, I think I may have been cheering for other cars at the time, but you guys would always take the podiums every single time. So uh -huh. I, uh, <laughs> uh, it was kind of funny, but I'm glad you brought that back. Are you guys outliers in the fact that you're bringing cars like that back and want to, do you have anybody to race against? I mean, are they bringing any of the other cars back to race? against you or are you guys since they were the podium cars kind of the only ones resurrecting and restoring race cars from the middle 90s to to put back on track there's there's actually uh, uh a group of guys that have a little thing called historical world challenge and there's some stasis audis out there some uh bimmer world bmws and you know uh different you know, makes from different uh, teams. So no, it's, it's a big deal. Uh, and there's a bunch of them out there now at the vintage races, they're not necessarily all there. So you're racing against other categories of cars and in, in multi-class groups, but that doesn't mean that you don't, uh, 
try to beat them. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah, Peter, you've been a very active uh, uh, buyer, uh, seller, and commenter on BAT over the years. Um, you know, obviously, often with really great uh, Honda Acura stuff, but uh, I think you sold an MGTF uh, uh, semi recently. You had an early 70s a GMC truck. So uh, I know you're a collector. I'm not too familiar with what's all in the garage. I think we'd love to hear kind of what, what direction the collection has taken, uh, you know, what great Honda Acura stuff you have and what else uh, do you like to play with? Well, I, I made a uh, statement to myself that I'm only gonna buy old Hondas from now on, but then there's certain other cars that happen to become available that it's like, oh, well, I have to buy that. Like I, I would still look for a, a 70s Corolla you know, four speed stick rear end, uh, whatever that 1600, you know, single cam, that would be cool. An old R RX three would be cool or an RX two, but, uh, no, I did have that GMC pickup. Um, the MGTF, uh, uh, that you mentioned was actually my wife's father's car that he bought on Christmas Eve, 1955. So it's been in the family, you know, for 65 years. So, um, you know, we, I don't know anything about British cars, um, except for, you know, the evidence that they leave when you move them from one part of the garage to the other. But, uh, you know, we didn't really have a, a need for that one anymore. So we let that one go. Um, I do have a couple cars that I would never sell. Things like uh, I have a 1971 Vista Cruiser. Um, I've got a 71 Buick Skylark Resto Mod. Um, convertible that I might sell someday. So I have a few uh, eclectic things, but now it's mostly all old Hondas and Acuras. And what, I mean, where does that alliance or uh, obsession come from with Honda? I mean, obviously they've supported your racing. You probably know different individuals working for the company and it, it's taken real time uh, to great heights, but is uh, was there something when you were a kid or is there some turning point or, or what's the, What's the thing that glues you to uh, the Honda and then Acura brand so tightly? Well, I almost had my first Honda as my second car. I had a 1979 Civic um, on order, but they couldn't deliver it because in those days they were just, you know, the supply wasn't there and, and you know, you can't tell them what color you want and you take it or leave it when they finally give it to you. Well, I got impatient and ended up with a, a Datsun 310GX. Um, that had a Targa band on it, which was kind of cool, but uh, was not, it was not a Honda either. And uh, so I didn't end up getting my first Honda until a few years later. Um, but before I bought my first Honda, I actually drove my friend's CRX around an autocross. And I'm like, whoa, this thing is fantastic. So then I committed to buying a 1986 Civic Si and kind of really fell in love. I had been a Mazda guy before that. I had had a few RX-7s that I had started my career road racing in and an RX-3 SP. But um, I don't know, there was just something about Honda in those early days. And then with the success from racing, um, it just kind of stuck. But, uh, you know, I like other cars too, but for sure the Hondas um, are always going to be with me. Yeah, cool. I don't blame you. It's, I mean, it's an interesting mark. My... Uh, family was a Volkswagen family. And so my sisters drove GTIs and then here comes the Integra, right? And that's what, uh, 
started to shift. I mean, so, so many of the uh, German cars uh, were kind of beat at their own game by Honda and Acura product. I got my first speeding ticket in my grandparents Accord, the flip up headlight Accord in, you know, 86, 87 Accord, whatever that was with a five speed in it, that car drove great. And apparently fast enough to get me a, a good ticket. And, uh, and then my sister had a GTI, but then my dad kind of changed his tune, didn't like repairing those so much. So I, she got a Gen 2 Integra that I got to drive a little bit after I turned 16 too, right? So I was, I had hands-on experience with those while you guys were uh, tracking them and doing all sorts of stuff and driving the inspiration and, and some of the Acura advertising in print mags and stuff back then had, had real-time cars in it and, and that sort of stuff. So um, anyway, the, the Honda journey for a lot of people, some people may have been really in on the early, early stuff in the, in the sixties and seventies. Uh, my family was not, and I certainly was not, uh, around to do that, but come, you know, the introduction of the first gen, uh, Integra and legend and all those cars, they started to be so prevalent and really just do such a great job with design and, and performance that uh, it's no it's no shock, it's no wonder that uh, so many people, and I think so many of our users have a personal sort of legacy relationship with the brand. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on to talk about it, just because what you've done, I think has been a meaningful part of Honda and Acura's presence in the US for probably a lot of people that are listening, certainly for me, and then seeing what you're doing with this real-time collection hall, I want to talk to you about the collection hall because I, I, uh, I'm also familiar, uh, you mentioned it earlier, with the other uh, Integra race car that the, the Honda, American Honda, has their own sort of facility with some pretty amazing examples. But these cars that you're starting to get, whether they're low mile or really quintessential spec Honda product, you're kind of putting into the collection hall. And I've seen pictures of it with, you know, cars stacked three high that are really um, the ones to have. Tell us, A, why you're doing that, why you're kind of structuring it, how it is. Is it is it going to, you know, be five or 10 or, or 30 cars forever? Or do you want to, you know, grow that into a larger collection? Or, or what is your vision and sort of plan for the collection hall? Well, how it started was just I was going to get old Hondas that had some significance in my racing career. So that would have been first and second gen CRXs, fourth gen Prelude, you know, things like that, the Integra Type R, of course. Um, but then one day a first gen Honda Accord came along and one of my friends said, oh, you got to buy this Honda Accord. I'm like, no, I don't have to buy this Honda Accord. That has nothing to do with my racing career. And then I started looking at the pictures and it's like, this thing is incredible. You know, so it's like, okay, we'll buy that one, but no more non, you know, historical racing real-time cars. But then after that, things maybe got a little out of hand and we just went berserk. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, you know, about 60 some Hondas here. And um, we do claim to be the largest privately held collection of Hondas um, in North America. And I don't, we, have, we haven't found anybody else as quite as silly in the rest of the world either. But um, yeah, we've got a, a very eclectic uh, selection of cars. Um, we certainly don't have one of everything. 
And there are a few that I would still like to get, but I'm not going to talk about those because I don't want to have to pay more than what, uh, if someone knows I need it, they might want to charge me a little bit more, but, uh, yeah, just a, a fun collection and, and some with, with great historical significance to the company. No, that's great. So some of my favorite uh, Honda cars we've listed in the past, certainly uh, with the earlier stuff, some really great, uh, you know, S600, S800 cars. Um, and then with the more modern stuff, uh, we've now listed two or three uh, Zanardi edition NSXs, um, some super low mileage uh, S2000 CRs. Um, if you can share, I, I'd, I'd be curious to know, you know, what, you know, super rare, super special uh, limited production uh, cars are, are among those uh, 60 in the collection? Well, I, I, I would start with the most significant in that it was the very first four-wheeled Honda when Honda was a, uh, let's see, 15-year-old company that started by bolting small engines on bicycles. They produced what's called the T360, which is a little K-class tr pickup truck with the big H on the nose, if that strikes a chord with uh, some of your listeners to, to know what that looked like. Um, that was, that's a very cool car. They made 108,920 of them, but there's probably less than 100 left in the world. And ours is the only one in North America, as far as we're aware. So that's um, a really cool piece. They were all uh, um, May blue, I think is the color. Um, and then another car that also has interesting significance is a 1995 Civic RS, which wasn't called a Type R, it was called a RS, but it came out 18 years before the first Honda Type R, the NSX 92R. And, but everything about this 1975 Civic RS is Type R-like. It could have very easily been called that. It had an engine that made 50% more power than the standard 1200cc unit. It was the first Honda to have a five-speed. It had bespoke fenders compared to other Civics that were accommodating larger wheels and tires. The rear quarters were rolled. The seats are reminiscent of uh, a GT40 seat with the little holes and rivets that for breathing. Um, very uh, a long list of, of, of things that make it uh, different than a standard Civic. And they made like maybe 17,000 of those in 1970, uh, 1974-75 era. And, and there can't be more than 50 of those left in the world. We know of one in Switzerland, one in France, maybe 30 some are accounted for in Japan. And I, we believe ours is the only one in North America. So that's, that's kind of a cool thing. And ours still has plastic on the door cards and has 9,000 kilometers on it with original paint. So it's kind of, kind of crazy. Wow. That sounds pretty cool. The, um, the uh, American Honda collection, do you find like something amazing pops up for sale and they're wrestling for it and you're wrestling for it. And it's some sort of underground battle between a manufacturer and privateer, or is it uh, are they kind of done with their, expansion or, or interest in their collection and it's uh it's more up to privateers like yourself to kind of carry the legacy of the vintage stuff yeah i think they pretty much have the things that they want to have at this point 
And the interesting thing about their collection is they have more, they certainly have prototypes. I really don't have any prototypes here, but the, the, the breadth of their collection is American spec Hondas, as you can imagine, and Acuras. Whereas ours is mostly USDM Hondas and Acuras, but we have, you know, a, a whole handful of non-US cars. We have a Honda Vamos that they, that was a sale-proof vehicle that uh, uh, was, they only made 2,500 of between 1970 and 73. Um, that's a cute little thing. Um, so we've got one of those. Um, we have a few different Acties. Um, and we do have a couple of S600s, one uh, a hard top and one a uh, Roadster. Um, certainly, you know, the first gen CRX, second gen CRX, we have some, you know, stupid examples of those with, you know, very little miles and, and strong history. Um, so just fun stuff. And then we have all of our race cars now that, that at least all the race cars that exist that hadn't been crushed. So we've got one of each, you know, except for the TCR modern day Civic Type R and the GT3 NSX. We don't, we don't have one of those, but um, everything else we have. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, no, that, that, that is great. You know, like, like so many major manufacturers and, and certainly Honda, there are so many uh, models that were produced over the years that never made it to the U.S. Uh, like I wasn't even aware of that Civic RS you mentioned. Um, so I love discovering uh, on BAT and elsewhere, um, you know, stuff that, uh, that never made it here. Uh, many years back, my dad uh, showed up one day uh, with a Honda Coupe 9. Uh, so free BAT hat for any listeners that actually know what that is. Um, but I've that's one. one you know, <laughs> I figured, you did. do you have one of those in the garage? We do. Uh, Earl Scheib would be ashamed of the paint job if it was his. And I don't know if your viewers remember Earl Scheib. But uh, no, it's, it's got good bones. But uh, um, that was an interesting car. It's air-cooled, 1,200 cc's, two or four side draft carburetors on it, and dry-sumped. And the sound is a combination between a Formula One car of that era and a lawnmower. So it's kind of a quirky little fun car. And it was one of the last cars that Mr. Honda had his hand on from an engineering standpoint. Um, so uh, it, it was not a successful car. They only made 8,000 of them and they were sold in, in Japan, but also Australia, New Zealand. And uh, it was just too expensive compared to what the competition had. So it, it didn't really, uh, do well. There's a there's at least a handful of them in North America, and they're they're kind of cute. They look like a combination of an Alpha and a Firebird of, of the era uh, on the front end. Yeah, Myron had one of those, right? Did or maybe even does? I think he um, still has his. Yeah, yeah, blue one. I think I'm pretty uh, sure he bought the one that my dad had. <laughs> I don't I don't know how many there could possibly be in the U.S., but uh, those two guys probably cornered the market. Yeah, those are super interesting. I, I featured, I mean, as you know, Peter, in the early days of BAT, I was just trolling everywhere trying to find weird stuff uh, for sale and to feature. And a couple of those popped up. I'm not sure if it's the one that Myron ended up with or uh, there certainly aren't many of them. But that's pretty amazing, Howard, that your dad kind of cruises home in one of those. Like it's like it's no big thing, you know. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> 
you have uh, you've recently sold a number of neat Honda motorcycles. Uh, that's a segment in general that we see as being more and more popular uh, with every passing year. Um, what's what's your involvement with with Honda bikes in particular? Is that um, uh, an increasing area of interest for you, or or what? Um, no, it's a it's it's not an area of interest for me. I like uh, Honda cars. If I want to do something on two wheels, I like to do it in a car. Um, but I did need a couple of the bikes for the back of the pickup truck for the original Honda uh, headquarters in, in, in Los Angeles because there was a Honda Dream and a Honda Cub in the back of the Chevrolet Apache truck. So we had to have those two bikes. I certainly had to have a Moto Campo. And I've got, you know, whatever they are, Z50, Z70, and some of these others, and a, and a number of Cubs and trails, this and that. And, uh, but they, those just followed me home. I don't really like bikes. I like cars. So, um, that's why I sold those. I just, you know, they don't take up a lot of room, but I don't really need them for my Honda car collection. So, um, there might be one or two more to go that we don't need, but, um, and I do have a 1971 ATC 90, which is a very rare car, car, it's a three-wheeler. Um, it was featured in Moonraker, the James Bond film. They wrote a couple of those James Bond did in the sand dunes. And they don't really have wheels. They just have the hubs. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but yep, for sure. Pretty cool little thing. So I might sell that one day, but um, I've got a couple of more modern three-wheelers. I see these more modern three-wheelers do pretty well. So um, I might try to put those on BAT in the future as well. Cool. Fantastic. While we're sitting here talking, I'm scrolling through the real-time collection hall Instagram page, which I'm not sure if you're doing that or have somebody else shooting. All oh, we have that. a big staff that does that. Randy, huge staff. Yeah. <laughs> huge staff. <laughs> well, pass my regards along to your uh, huge staff, whether they're imaginary or whether they're real. But I mean, I, uh, one thing I, I actually wrestle with podcasts and what the listeners are hearing, right? We're talking about all these cool cars, and the visuals of, uh, of the collection, A, that you've built, but B, how you display them. I, I just, I love it. It's like electric for me. I can look at these pictures all day long. I'm sitting here nudging Howard. He's telling me to stop. But I mean, you got like just so much cool stuff, the way that, the way that they're displayed in there. And, and um, you know, I, I just really like that. Similar to your vintage racing reference earlier, sort of more modern vintage racing. I like the way that nostalgia and uh, historic cars, the definition of that is evolving, right? I mean, when I, in the eighties and nineties, when, when I was younger, like talking about vintage cars meant, uh, you know, tail fins and pastel colors and, and, you know, Mustangs and, and all that sort of stuff. And now looking at, you know, this 91 prelude with four wheel steering in, in your collection, I mean, that's a, that's a 30 year old car. Right. So, I mean, it's older than, I mean, enthusiasts that followed some enthusiasts that followed BAT were born after that car was right. And it's a 91 prelude. So I just think it's super cool how you and many others too, but you uh, are um, just sort of um, helping to bolster that continually modernizing and evolving definition of collector cars. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how that works, but, you know, I do like the, the 60s American cars, particularly the, the 
the GM cars and the, and the Fords, not so much the Chryslers, but uh, certainly um, there's a few cars in the 70s that are, are fun. Um, like a, I, I still want like a, a Grand Am or a Can-Am Pontiac two-door from like the mid 70s. That's such a good road car and, and but you know, you just can't find them. Um, but really, um, starting in, in, the, in the mid to late 80s into the 90s and the early 2000s, that's certainly a, a, a group of cars that really were in an expanding performance situation after the whole uh, fuel crisis in the early 70s. And by, by the time 1980, you know, 1980 isn't necessarily the best year uh, from any of the manufacturers for, for what they were putting out in, in, in and around that year compared to what they started to produce in the years subsequent to that. So um, certainly that's where things really hotted up was it was in those later 80s and then into the 90s and uh, into the 2000s as well. So that's certainly my era. And, and I think a lot of uh, people my age and, and even 20 years younger than, than I would be also interested in it. And I think we've seen that um, on, on BAT and in the domain. Well, it's, it's great to hear about all that. And again, I'm just scrolling your, your photos while you're talking. I love finding these cars that you you somehow surfaced and um, either preservation cars or cars you're investing in and restoring. I think you're doing a lot for um, the younger side of the enthusiasts. I get asked all the time, um, you know, hey, BAT has a younger demographic and people are psyched about it. Like, what's the future of this and where is it going? And um, and I think that, um, yeah, just evolving that definition the way you are is really what appeals to a lot of younger folks um, that are going to racetracks that are that are now doing um, all of their uh, reading and learning about cars online and on Instagram instead of in you know the pages of paper magazines like like people used to. So um, it's just all part of this momentum that I think is really positive, and I think it it creates a really great narrative for for where this stuff is headed. So anyway, I just really appreciate your involvement on BAT. I appreciate your willingness to be with us today. Um, I certainly want to, yeah, uh, tell people about, yeah, your, your Instagram account uh, to go follow and see those pictures that I love so much. Uh, where will people potentially be able to see some of your cars out and about? I don't know that you host visitors at your, at your collection itself, but it sounds like you get cars out to the track or, or maybe some, uh, some other shows here and there. Uh, I know things are hopefully kind of opening up here through the summer and late this year. Do you see a possibility for anybody to see some of these cars of yours uh, anywhere publicly? Sure. I mean, we have done tours here at the collection hall um, in special circumstances, but we're certainly not open to the public. Um, last year at the July Vintage Weekend at Road America, we brought out um, our five preludes, one of each generation, um, an example of each, including that third gen that you referred to, um, the four-wheel steer SI that has 9,700 miles and the original tires on it. Um, um, this year, I don't know exactly what we're going to have at, at Road America for July Vintage, but we might be at the Spring Vintage and the July Vintage this year, and I'm sure we'll bring some of our... Uh, uh, neat cars. There's a, a Concours in Elkhart Lake every year 
that uh, is, is a pretty fun event. And I've brought a new Honda out to that, one or two new Hondas out to that, when I say new, slightly used uh, Hondas. Um, so I'm sure we'll do something with that. Um, and we go to the local car shows and I enjoy, you know, going to other shows that where my cars aren't uh, to see other people's cars. Cause I, you know, I can appreciate non Hondas as well and, and uh, enjoy going to any of these car events and, and, you know, seeing my friends there and meeting new friends. No, I was uh, I was at the Elkhart Summer Festival maybe two or three or four years back, and remember walking around on a Saturday night and came across a, a Super Cherry Low Mile NSX that had your name on the windshield. Um, you had a few other cars there that year as well, I think. Uh, but no, Peter, yeah, certainly you of all people um, uh, keenly understand my love for uh, for Spotted Cow and the glorious Wisconsin countryside. Yep, I I prefer two women to the Spotted Cow, which is another new Glarus product, uh, not to scare your listeners. Um, but uh, yeah, everybody loves Spotted Cow and it's, it's like Coors beer and uh, Smoking the Bandit where people try to get it. Um, after an event a few years ago, a friend of mine liked it so much, I had to go to the store and buy a styrofoam little travel pack that was specifically designed to carry, you know, uh, fragile bottles and got two 12 packs of spotted cow and shipped it to him. And, you know, he was, now he's definitely my friend. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'll have to forward you my address. Sounds like they need, <laughs> they need to get on that uh, care package list. We'll see. What I would happens. never do that again because it's illegal. You can't, oh, right. take, you can't take spotted cow out of Wisconsin. Oh, is that the rule? Okay. Well, I got to come to Wisconsin then. You've, you've also been very uh, gracious recently reaching out and saying, you know, anything we can do at uh, Road America, maybe we can get together and do some fun things. We certainly want to be back there with BAT and with BAT alumni gatherings and the BAT community. Uh, anything we can do to get to spend more time at that track and with people like yourself would be a ton of fun. So Peter, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really fun to talk Hondas and, uh, and the rest of the context of your automotive life. And thanks for being on BAT. You bet. And, and thank you very much uh, for myself, but on behalf of the BAT community, thanks for what you guys are doing uh, to improve uh, productivity in the workplace every afternoon uh, or whatever it is that you're doing over there. Um, but no, we really, uh, we really appreciate the job that you guys are doing. And uh, boy, what did we do before BAT? This is fantastic. So thank you guys very much. You bet. Thanks. We'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye now.